John's gospel, John's gospel is different from what we call the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in that uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and if you've read them, and you, Mark is a short, the shortest one and considered to be the, the, the first one written, and you, you know that they read like they are synopses of, of Jesus' life and ministry. They are kind of, a, kind of a somewhat orderly. They're arranged differently because in that way of thinking about, about recording historical facts in that time, uh, the writers were not so much concerned with perfect chronology but arranged the things in, 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 in an order that, that fit their purpose as far as demonstrating who Jesus is. If you've read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you know that they read differently than John. And you read John, John, there's a bunch of stuff that's in the others that's not in John, and there's stuff in John that's not in the others, and there are a few things that, that, that meet. But John has a particular emphasis, and John kind of advances Jesus' life uh, by giving seven signs. There are seven miracles or seven things that happen in Jesus' ministry that are kind of the, 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 um, the, the foundation of John, John's gospel. And they lead us all the way up to Jesus' resurrection. And, they, uh, and the reason I use this term, intersections where heaven meets earth, is because theologians write of what, uh, what is called the Johannine dualism. Uh, in other words, dualism, there's a dualism in John. John has this construct, this way he, he relates uh, the story of Jesus. And it has to do with, with the word that was eternal and heavenly, having been made flesh and dwelt among us. So it's heaven and earth. And so in these, these seven signs and these miracles, what we're going to see is that in those moments, it's like that's when the, the presence and the power of God and all of the glories of heaven kind of meet human beings here in earth in those moments in very special ways to portray and demonstrate the glory of Jesus and who he is. And so intersections where heaven and earth meet the Seven Signs of John. That's the series. Now, this morning's message is entitled, When You're Running on Empty. When, uh, none of y'all don't know nothing about that, right? <laughs> Talking about your car as I see gas is starting to, to creep back up again. I was so enjoying that low $2 gas. It's like I was actually filling up my car for my wife every and she was going all week. I was like, at one time, because I was, you know, before I was nickel and diamond in at the gas station, because you put twenty dollars in there, and it just moved the needle up a little bit, and say, okay, well, that'll that get you. Now put some more. But I was just put, I put like forty and fill it all the way up. It's like, yeah, we're good, you know. And now we're getting back to okay, twenty five. <laughs> and I'm not going to talk about, you know, some of you that were here last week. You know, I got in trouble talking about my Ford Expedition with two hundred twenty thousand miles on it. But that dog takes a lot of gasoline. Twenty six. The book says 26 gallons, but you can stand there and pump 30 into it when it's empty. And I, it never gets filled up no more. <laughs> but you know what it's like to run on empty? You know what it's like to run out of stuff? You know what it's like to be depleted? And so we use this as a thought because what we're talking about today is the wedding in Cana, the, this event where Jesus turns the water into wine. Now, one of the things that, um, that I, I was thinking about with regard to this, this story that we're going to look at this morning. I, I, was thinking about, um, I was thinking about myself and how sometimes I'm, I, I, I get on my theological high horse, if you will, and I start to, 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 to speculate and to ruminate about stuff. And so sometimes I, I, I think about uh, uh, what things that I consider to be minor or trivial that people make a big deal about, you know, like... It's like when people are trying to go somewhere and they're like praying to God fervently for a parking space. 
And there's a part of me, and probably not the best part of me, that, probably, that part of me probably could, you know, has to be kind of put in its place. There's a part of me that says, now, you know, wait a minute, people are going to bed hungry every night, and, and, uh, and there are wars breaking out all over the world, and there's Ebola, and, and then, for crying out loud, we got measles running around here in the United States again. And you're praying and asking God for a parking space? I'm just saying, you know. Then I, then I was thinking, you know, there, there, on, on another, here's another thing that pertains to this, and these will all kind of come back around and we'll, we'll connect them later. But I was, sometimes I think about my, my own personal honor, uh, you, uh, my, my own sense of, of dignity. And sometimes I have the sense that, that my honor, my pride, if you will, my, my, my you know, self-esteem is not something God cares much about. In other words, God doesn't care about my standing in the world and how I feel about myself and whether I am honored or shamed or whether I have dignity or whether I am broken down. And because sometimes in settings I grew up in, some of you know about some church folks, right? Yeah. Some church folks, you get the sense that God is always trying to break you down and tear you up. You know, you don't play with God. See, God don't like ugly, and so they sure don't like you. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, you, so we, you, sometimes you get the sense that God don't really care about how you feel, and God don't really care about your, your, your sense of self-esteem, and God doesn't really care about your, 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 uh, your, your honor, your dignity, your, you know. But, but basically, you know, sometimes we get to, we're almost made to believe that God don't care if we just walk around looking like a bunch of fools. Matter of fact, I saw a bumper sticker that said, I'm a fool for Christ. Whose fool are you? And I'm not so sure that's what the Bible was talking about when Paul said so. But in the Gospel of John this morning, listen, we find, we'll find, I think, a fresh perspective on God's care for our lives and, and, and his concern for maybe sometimes things that seem trivial to us and to others around us. And, and maybe this morning as well, we'll begin to realize that God is much more willing to, to spare us from shame and disgrace and things like that than we may have thought before. God cares about things sometimes that, that we've been told that he doesn't care about. Listen to these words from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Now, that's, that, that is not, if I had responded to my mother like that, I would not be here before you on this morning. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I think once my brother did, and he, he, I'm surprised he lived to, to, to tell about it. That, but that was actually not a term of disrespect in, in, in that idiom. In, in Aramaic, it was actually a term of respect. It was appropriate. But he says, why do you involve me? Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. Jesus is just beginning his ministry, and he's, he's being very careful about where he displays his power and his glory and where he does he's listening to God but then his mother and you know how our moms are you know his mother you know because you see what he says my hour is not yet come does she listen to him she says okay son when you go back over there she says she says to the service just do whatever he tells you to do (laughs) you know boy you're gonna do something about this you're gonna you go do some work up in here Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some water out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. 
And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But <laughs> some of you don't, yeah, don't, don't just stay with me, stay with me. <laughs> but you have saved the best till now. And what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs, see there it is, through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So what we just read is the first of these seven signs in John's gospel, right? And let's talk about a sign for a moment because there's a distinction to be made between these signs as they're described in this setting and ordinary miracles, as though miracles are ordinary, right? Is there such a thing as an ordinary miracle? I don't know. But a sign is something that is not simply miraculous, but a sign is something that specifically reveals Jesus' divine nature, his mission to those who are open to see it. Signs, if you will, point to Jesus' identity. You know there are signs that point to places around us, right? There are signs that will tell you Playa Vista is that way. And, 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 and if you're up in L.A., maybe a sign will point, say, Inglewood, 10 miles that way. And you get on the freeway, the signs tell you the mileage. And then there, there are signs that say one way. And you go down this street, don't go the other way. Signs point to something or signify something. And so they point to Jesus' identity. And as John indicates from the first verses of his gospel back in chapter 1, Jesus himself is something as, some, some, somewhat of a sign. Because he is the one who reveals God. He is the word who was with God from the beginning and is God. And the word in John, the first chapter in verse 14, became flesh. And he makes the invisible God known. In chapter 1, verse 18, he says, nobody has seen God at any time but God, but, but the, the one and only who's at the Father's side. That's Jesus, the word, the living word. He has revealed him to us. And so Jesus himself is a sign. But these signs have at least four purposes, just briefly. First, the signs in John's gospel, they reveal some factor or some characteristic about Jesus. And we'll be, for seven weeks, we'll be looking at these seven signs. Secondly, they, they communicate the completeness of Jesus' actions on behalf of human beings. As we read these signs, we'll see that they, they actually are all kind of complete remedies to some issue at hand. And, and, that's, and then the third one, uh, uh, purpose is that they demonstrate, in, in every case, something about the power of God that demonstrates to us the availability of abundance. That's something wonderful that we'll get from this story today that will remind us that God is not tight and chintzy, and God is not, is, 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 not, is, is not, you know, like some of us are, but God is a God of abundance. And then fourth, these signs will develop faith in those who see and comprehend the significance of, of whatever the miracle is. That's, the, the, that's what happens when a miracle becomes a sign, because it, it becomes a sign when it leads to faith in those who see it. And the disciples, and, and what we just read, they believed as a result of this, fir- this first sign. It does, we, you know, there may have been others who were present that believed, but, but he says specifically, the disciples, they saw this sign and they believed. And so John shares these seven signs that Jesus performs, and each one reveals something significant about Jesus' identity and his mission. 
And so miracles are intended to demonstrate that God exists, but as I said a moment ago, miracles were not done by Jesus for the sake of miracles. You know, sometimes we, wanna, we can make church like a dog and pony show because we have a whole bunch of uh, Christian folks who's supposed to, who, who've been walking with the Lord, supposed to know that God is real and who know the Word of God, but then they want to come out and meet some preacher somewhere on some, on some Sunday night because he said, we're going to make the, the dead rise. I haven't seen too much of that happening. The lame walk and the blind, you know. And, 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 and it's like we're just doing it just, you know, because we're going to have a miracle service. And, you know, I understand it when there are needs. But sometimes it becomes a form of, of entertainment. And sometimes we as Christians are weak in our own faith and we're looking for something maybe. But miracles, Jesus didn't do miracles just to do miracles. He didn't do them just to show off, if you will. Sometimes I think preachers and those who have certain gifts in their lives, if they're not careful, they will showcase the miraculous power of God in their lives to get good press and to, to increase their following. And to sometimes, oh, I just, I just, I'm the pastor here, so I can be blunt about it. Sometimes to, to garner more money. Jesus didn't do anything without purpose and without, without a focus, and he did everything he did. For the sake of the, of, the, of the purpose for which God had sent him, they're not contrived demonstrations. They're always in response to a need. Sometimes we can offer to, to help people with miracles that aren't real, that are about things that don't really represent a need. I mean, one place they were calling out people who had leg, one leg shorter than the other, and it was, they were praying for them, and most of the people who were coming didn't know they had it. So I guess that's not a real, if my, if my leg is a half inch shorter and, and I'm not limping, I guess that's not a real need now. If I, if I was missing a leg, now that's a need. You know what I'm saying? But anyway, in this first sign, he turns the water into wine. And um, now let's follow me and let's, let's make a few observations here about what has happened, okay? First of all, he turns the water into wine, but not just any kind of wine. Now let me, let me, let me help some of you and, and stir up your pure minds here because the, the wine that was drunk in this, in this, in, in, this, in this environment, no, it wasn't grape juice, but it wasn't, it wasn't uh, you know, probably what we think of. It was much diluted, and probably part of the reason it was such, such a common occurrence in, in the ancient Near East is because, you know, in a lot of places, the water isn't too good, and it needs to be kind of sterilized. And so it, but, but still, the text, it does indicate that there is some sort of marginal wine that could have been brought forth, and then there's the better stuff. And we're not talking about Ripple here. <laughs> if you're younger than 40, maybe you don't know what Ripple is. If you're older than, older than 40, some of you wish you had not known what it was. <laughs> but if you watch Fred Sanford, <laughs> he turns this water into the best wine imaginable. And, and not only that, but notice that he produces it in, in, in vast quantities. I, I was reading some, 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 some comment on this, and, and these are like big vessels, and there's a lot of the, there were There were scholars that were saying, listen, there, there was enough wine that was contained in this to feed, uh, somebody thinks, uh, said to feed, you know, uh, um, I, yeah, it's a food group, right? <laughs> there was enough wine to, to, to satisfy the needs of upwards of 100 people or more that he produced in this moment. Vast quantities, not just a little bit. And in this, Jesus reveals something to us 
something that, about, about the profound abundance of God in Christ. That's what Jesus is all about. It's about God emptying out and pouring out everything he has in his very best for the benefit of humankind. Abundance. Just what Jesus said in John 10.10. He says, you know, the the thief, you know who that is an allusion to, right? The devil. He he comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy. But Jesus said, I came that they might have life. But he didn't just say that they could just have a little bit of life. I didn't come that you could just have a touch of life. I, just, I didn't came to just sprinkle a little bit of fairy dust on you, just give you a good feeling. But I came that you would have life and that you would let, have that life to the full. And the King James says that life more abundantly. Life to the full. But that goes along with what he, John had stated in the first chapter. Because he said in the first chapter, he said, out of his fullness. We have all received grace upon grace upon grace. We have all received one blessing after another. I know some of you get tired of asking God for stuff, but God never gets tired of answering you and never gets tired of your cry and never gets tired of your hearing. And you will never tap out the bank of heaven. You will never tap out. You will never deplete his resources. He's a God of abundance. Oh, that's and the beautiful thing about it. What the New Testament says about Jesus is that it says, okay, here's Jesus. He says, and in Jesus Christ, all the fullness of, 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 of our triune God dwells in him. But Jesus, when he came into the world, all the fullness of God lived in him and lives in him. And he says, and guess what? You are complete in him. Why? Because he is in you. Abundance. Fullness. So, this, 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 this miracle, this Changing of the water to wine is a miracle that, that met a need. And that's one of the characteristics, I said, of, of these signs is they, they meet a need. Now, let's go a little further because what happens here is the host of, of the wedding feast had run out of wine. Now, you have to understand the cultural context. Uh, if that would happen, uh, you know, in this setting, if that were, you know, if you were inclined to, let's say that we had a wedding feast the, and they ran, out of, they ran out of Martinelli's. That's Christian champagne. And it wouldn't be a big deal because there's probably a Ralph's or an Albertson's, right, or Stater Brothers or, or something, or Safeway or something, or Smart and Final nearby. Oh, I'm going to go get something. You know, it's like around here at the church. There's some, some of, some of the, the, the men here. It's just so wonderful because it's like, it's like if we're having something, we run up somebody. Next thing you know, somebody down the street, and we're so blessed to have Smart and Final about a quarter mile from here. So that's no problem. We run down, we, we'll get some more. But see, it wasn't this, it wasn't this easy in this, in this context. But what, what, what would have happened is, listen to me now, it would have been a source to run out of, of wine at a, at, at a wedding feast in this context, in, in first century, uh, century Israel, would have been a source of tremendous embarrassment and shame. In fact, one commentator I, I read surmised that, based upon some research, you could have actually almost been sued it's like and I thought sometimes you feel when you go to stuff and they run out of stuff it should be a crime <laughs> especially when you haven't got to the head of the buffet line yet and the chicken wings are gone <laughs> but it was a source of major embarrassment and, and it's a failure to meet a culturally accepted standard of graciousness Maybe they had an unexpected number of guests. Some, some people thought maybe Jesus and his disciples, maybe they were kind of crashing the reception. Maybe they weren't expecting. Mama just said, come on in, Jesus, bring your boys on in. 
I don't know if 12 of them could have exhausted all of the resources, but, but, but maybe, the, maybe the family wasn't wealthy and only had enough money to provide so much and hope that would be enough and hope that it would work. See, this is the kind of dilemma that doesn't seem to be a big thing in our society, but in, 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 in John's world, this was a major, major disaster societally, socially, culturally. It, it, it's, it's a large problem. It's a big problem. And Jesus solves the problem. By providing additional wine of very high quality, but he not only solves the problem, but he solves it with an abundance of high quality wine so that the wedding feast can be fully celebrated. Sometimes we think Jesus is just trying to rescue us or just trying to keep us going rather than the fact maybe Jesus is trying to give us and to outfit us and complete us and give us all the things we need for life and godliness so we can move forward in life and thrive and not just survive. But see, the miracle was a face-saving miracle. This is what we miss culturally if we're not careful. Again, I can hardly overstate how big the issue of dishonor and shame would have been for the wedding host had this problem not been solved. Because this Near Eastern culture is an honor-shame culture. And we have another kind of, of cultural orientation in the West. And that's why we don't often do well with people in the Middle East. Because, you see, in, I know that we don't like to be shamed and embarrassed and called out and you don't want people to play in the dozens on you and, and you don't want to, to, to say you look funny and stuff like that. You don't want nobody to front you off. But in our culture, we kind of have a little bit more. We kind of brush it off a little bit more. So, you, know, you might fight, you might not. But in, in, in honor-shame cultures, you know, do you, if you recall, and you recall in, in looking at like, the situation with the United States dealing with Japan in World War II, one of the problems at the end of the war that, that kept Japan from surrendering as quickly as they did was the fact that the United States was going to go in and take the emperor out and just take the whole country over. And the, sense, the issue of shame in that culture was so strong that they as a people could not bear that. And they would not surrender. They would have fought to the death. They would have fought tooth and nail. And, that's, you know, and so that was one of the concessions that had to, had to be. They had to keep the emperor to preserve a little bit, because you can conquer somebody, but still do it in a way to, to preserve a little bit of the national dignity and a little bit of the, uh, and, and not just inflict so much shame. And sometimes when, when we deal with people in other cultures, we're just all in their face and we just, you know, roll all over them and disgrace them and abuse them. And then it's like, well, you know, no harm, no foul. But they, people, there are things that you can do to people in honor, shame cultures, and there's something about them on a psychological level they will never recover. It's a different culture. You, you're more resilient than that because we have a different orientation. That's the culture that we're talking about here. This, this miracle was important to save the face of, of, of the host of this reception. Jesus spares the wedding party and the host, the humili humiliation and the embarrassment of not having enough. So, the first thing that we want to look at, the first thing we observe is this. He cares about your honor. I don't know if you've ever heard this in church. But I, 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 I would suggest to you that Jesus really does care when we risk shame and humiliation and embarrassment. There are things that you've been through. There are times when you were shamed. There were times when you were dishonored. There were times when you were mortified and embarrassed. And we think that God is sitting up in heaven saying, well, you know, Pride goes before a fall anyway, so it's just, just you 
know, just humbling you before the Lord. There are some people that think that shaming you and breaking you down and humiliating you is their way of humbling you and keeping you holy. But I'm here to tell you, I think God, God cares about our sense of dignity. God cares about our honor. God cares about, about these things. He's not, no, he's not trying to stir up your pride. He's not trying to, because, because and he's not trying to promote egotism. But, but we don't have to be afraid to ask Jesus to help us in those, in those little areas of our lives where we, we, we risk shame and embarrassment. Sometimes the worst, the things we dread the most are, 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 are things that have to do with what we might think is silly because we shouldn't care about how we look to other people, but you're human and you do. I know the, the tough ones of you out there, I don't care what nobody think about you. I don't care what they do. But, you know, for most of us, somewhere within ourselves, we want to be loved. We want to be respected. As we get older, we want to maintain a sense of dignity in our lives. We want our accomplishments to be recognized. When we fail, we'd like a little grace. We would not like to be stripped down to nothing psychologically and emotionally. We want to kind of hold our head up in life. That's not pride in the negative sense. That's who you were created to be because you were created in the image of your Father God. We don't have to be afraid to ask him in those areas. God created us as social beings who are we're sensitive to these concerns. And that's why David came to know God. In, 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 in this, the Bible is wonderful because you've got all these different ways that God is, is, is described and depicted. But David came to know God like this in, in, in the third psalm. Can you imagine what it's like? I mean, maybe you can because some of us have had, we've had intra-family squabbles. And can you imagine what it's like? But can you imagine what it's like to be the king of Israel and your own son has got a band of men and they are out to take you out? He has turned on you, your own son, in the face of all you as the king of this mighty nation, the chosen anointed king of God. That's that's got to be humiliating. See, David came to understand this, and that's why somebody wrote a song about this one sometime about 36 years ago. He said, that's why he said, you, oh God, you're, you're a shield around me. You're my glory. See, you know, the priest said, you ain't got no glory, only God. He said, no, you're my glory, and you're the lifter. Hold your head up high. You're the lifter of my head. He said, you're, you're the lifter. So he said, God must care something about the fact that it's not just preserving my neck, but it's, it's keeping my head held up high when I would be bowed down to the ground in shame. But God is a shield. He protects me in the physical sense, but he's my glory, and I can get up and hold my head up. I, listen. I, I may be pursued, but I'm somebody. I may not be loved in this moment. Somebody might have something out against me, but I am somebody. And I don't care what happens to me. I don't care what I go through. I don't care what hardships. I don't care what, where I mess up or where I fail. I am a human being created in, in the image of God. And he is my glory, and he's the lifter of my head. God cares about those things. Some of you need, some of you have been through incredible pain and humiliation. You need, to have, you need to sit down and have a long talk with Jesus about it. And if you listen really carefully for his still, small voice, you'll hear him say to you, my child, when you were going through that, when your heart was breaking, so was mine. When you were weeping, I was weeping with you. I was not gloating in that. I wasn't thinking, yeah, that's good, that's good, that's the great equalizer. It'll break them down and make them moral. I was hurt too because, see, Jesus doesn't deal with you that way. Jesus doesn't shame people. You remember the woman caught in adultery, they brought her to Jesus, you know, because she was guilty of the law, and he could have, he could have read her her rights. He could have, you know, my, my parents used to say, he could have read her titles clear. 
he, he had her dead to rights. He just got down and started writing on the ground. He said, I'm not going to break this woman down. She knows she's wrong. She knows where she's failed. You can't be in that kind of culture, in that kind of situation as an adulteress in multiple failed marriages. And every time you walk down the street, everybody knows your business. And you are a, you have a scarlet letter on your head. She's already dealing with shame. Jesus wasn't going to add anything to the shame. She said, so he said, listen, you, you know, so that's fine. So if you think she's guilty, the rest of you guys, the, the one that should start this, 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 this rock and roll party is the one among you, the one that, that, that has no sin. You should be the first one. Because Jesus, in effect, said, I'm not going to shame this one. I'm not going to condemn this woman. And get what happened. One by one, they all, hasta la vista, baby. He cares about those things. Amen. Amen. Secondly, he cares about every detail of your lives. You know, so going back to what I stated at the beginning, maybe my armchair theologizing about parking space prayers is as silly as I might have purported those prayers to be. Maybe I'm the one who's off. We could fr- frame it in the form of a question. Because while people, and, I, and you know, whenever there are issues of abundance, it's people, well, you know, you know even when Jesus, you know, the woman's anointing his feet with the ointment, right? And, you know, there's Judas, so it, you know, this is like, we are in an economic crisis here. This could have been, we need to practice a little austerity up in here because this, this could have been used to, sold and used to feed the poor. You know, we always have that, those kind of, you know, Jesus said, you know, and he doesn't, doesn't say this to demean the poor, but you, you will have the poor with you always, but God is still a God of abundance. And it really doesn't take anything from God when we have, re, if we have needs. It's like we're not going to exhaust God's resources. So here's, here's the question. Can't the God of the universe help the poor, feed the hungry, but also help me in some minute, seemingly insignificant aspect of my life? Huh? What do you think? The God that can, can cure diseases, and we should be praying for all of the situations of the world. We should be praying that God would send cures for diseases like Ebola and, and HIV AIDS. We should be praying that God would, would bring peace in various regions of the world that are racked with, with, with disturbances. We should pray that God would, would put a stop to the terrorist violence that's going on around the world. We, we should do that. But, but, may, but do you think that God is too small to not answer those prayers, but also to be available to you when you have requests and needs that, that you put before God, things that might be some small issue in your life that would improve the quality of your life? That would maybe take a little bit of the stress out of your day and help, maybe sometimes help you save face in the situation while at the same time increasing your joy. God cares about those things as well. Now, I'm not telling you to be so myopic and so self-centered that it's all about you and the air. God, everything, you know what? I want, Lord, I pray today somebody will shine my shoes for free. You know, I pray, Lord, you know, I pray when I go to the store, I'm going to get the, you know, some of you down there, you know, buying them little scratches. And I'm blowing in this all of you. I'm not talking about getting like that, but I'm talking about this. There are stuff in your life that really means a lot to you, and you think that it doesn't mean anything to God, but I think it does. 
more than you realize. Because if you were to read, read this story without the miracle, you'd say, well, this was, Jesus, is this like, is this like, a, I remember I went on a tour one time, and music, and, you know, we had the tour, but then we had two warm-up dates. Two places in Florida. Which place? But we had this, it was a great tour, but this was 30 years ago. Warm-up dates, you know, so this must be the warm-up miracle, right? The real tour is coming up when he starts healing sick folk. But, you know, this is, this really, why is this the first one? Why is it in here? Why did he do this? You see what I'm saying? Are you with me? Talk back to me now. Why, why is it here? Because you would say, well, what's, you don't care. I don't care about nobody's wedding party. I don't care about nobody's reception. I don't care about nobody running out of their, their, their beverage of choice or their refreshments or chicken wings. It don't matter to me. Why should that matter to God? Apparently it does. So there's some stuff in your life that you've placed off limits to his his care because you think they don't matter to him but I would suggest to you that maybe they do so Jesus demonstrates his concern for the little things as well as the big things you hear me since he's God he has the power to handle the big things and the small things we think in terms of limited resources and that's in here too because you see there everybody's thinking in terms of we don't, we're out of stuff we're running on empty here. We're out of uh, wine. We're out of, we're, you know, we're at, we're at the end of our rope. And we think in terms of scarcity and limited resources. Having, you know, we have to choose between one thing and the other. But Jesus cares about all. Say all. How many is all? Everything. Everything. All needs of our lives. There's no, there's no problem too big for God. And preachers say that all, don't we? There's no problem too big for God. But I want to tell you this morning, there's no problem too small for God as well. And then third, amen. I'm going to give you all of them. He gives us his best. And that's why, you know, we, and we strike a bell. I know sometimes I've, I've, I've visited the um, Our Lady Queen of Angels Cathedral downtown. My wife, we, have, we do this, we, we walk miles and miles downtown. Because downtown is becoming fascinating. There's so much is going on down there. And then there's stuff I hadn't seen. I grew up in this town. And I worked down there in the 70s. And like where I worked was all seedy because I worked for Bank of America in this office building. And it was right across the street from this, this bar called Krabby Joe's. And you should see it all the 70s. Uh, and then now it's like, uh, it's hipster haven, right? Yeah. Grand Central Market now, it's like a trip. You go there on the Saturday and there's all these hipsters. They're all sitting there. And there's an oyster bar now, you know. That used to be where you'd go to get parts of the pig you couldn't get at your local store, you know. <laughs> but, but, you know, you, 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 I, I went to the cathedral, and, you know, of course, we're not Roman Catholic. We're, we're Protestant. But I, I, wanted to, I wanted to see it. And so we, we had, we, first of all, we walked over to where that fire was. I was trying to show her where, where the big fire was. Then we walked up that hill, and then we got in there. And, and it's, it's really cool because it it's just open. You walk when it's you know, sunny, there's nothing going on. People are just in there. You can walk up on the, on the altar and everything, just look at stuff, walk up, look at the pipe organ. Just don't mess with it. Get on there and start throwing some licks. Get off that thing. But, um, and, and, you, and, and it is opulent. It is amazing. It is like crazy, crazy as far as, and the money it costs and how large it is and how beautiful it is and the art. And there are two schools of thought with this thing. Because there are people saying, but see, these churches take all that money and build all those buildings and all that art and stuff, and people are starving. And I know that. On the other hand, we, the church throughout history has built things that, that provide, first of all, a, a spiritual center for the community and that make a statement culturally and artistically and architect. 
actually about Christian faith and about what we believe in and about how our God and the splendor that he deserves. And so that's kind of because we, we, sometimes it's nice to think in terms of when you do things for God, do the best and give him the best because he wants to give you the best. Yeah. He wants to give you his best. He's not looking to give us leftovers. Now, secondhand stuff is wonderful, and we share things because we, because we, a lot of times it's just a thing of, of good stewardship because if there are clothes that you can't wear no more, but they're still wearable. But that's what I tell you. When we give folks clothes, we don't go give them the raggedy stuff. Amen. Nobody wants your, 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 the shirts with the holes in them and buttons all popped off, dirty. We give, you give what I what, I'll take it to the cleaners before I give it away because I want it to become pressed and on a hanger and write and give somebody something that they can be proud of. But God gives us his best. Jesus could have said, okay, here's some, this is some wine-flavored beverage. You know, I never did, what's it called, cheese food? Yeah. Uh, here, he said, I'll make, I'll, okay, here's, here's a miracle. Feel the possibility. This will be like, this will be enough to get you through. I said, we're going all out on this. We're going to give them our best. This miracle is going to be, this is going to be some supernatural quality wine because that's who Jesus is and that's who God is. That's why the master of the banquet calls the bridegroom and he tells him, he said, wow, most people serve the good stuff first because after, after a while people don't care no more. But you have saved the best for last. Oh, let me tell you, there's a little, little side application because for somebody this morning, I want you to know that God has better things in store for you. Although you think your life is over, you think he is through with you, you think because you've walked in his grace, in his blessings, in his provision, that you've used up all your blessings, that you've that punched your card out and you have no more turns left, no more blessings. But let me tell you, Jesus has this way of saving the best for last. God is not through with you yet. God is not done with you. God still has more. Sometimes as we, as we enter, as we walk through life and we get to midlife, we feel like, wow, I've lived and I've done this and got a few years on me and, and, and there's not much left. But I'm going to tell you something. As long as you have breath in your body, God has a purpose for you. There's still more in store for you. Your challenge is to believe him, to trust him and walk him in him. He's a God of miracles. And then fourthly, he wants you to have his joy. Because wine in the Old Testament, it is, it is a symbol. It symbolizes, literally, in a literary sense, it symbolizes joy. And God wants his people to have joy. I know that we go through suffering, but even, even the Old Testament said, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Old folks said, when I was coming, they said, I'm so glad trouble don't last always. The grammar may not, may not be so good, but the theology is impeccable. God wants his people to have joy. God wants us to live lives characterized by celebration, by joy, by gladness. He wants that for us. That's why when we come to church, I know there are times, sometimes there might be a spirit of heaviness. Sometimes we might weep before the presence of God. Sometimes we might get down on our knees and fall, you know, flat on our face before God. Sometimes, you know, there's, there's those moments where we're convicted of our sin and the Holy Spirit is maybe challenging us about something we need to get right. But generally, what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to celebrate. We're supposed to rejoice. Because you understand the theory, right? Because I, I've, people would come up to you, you know, as pastor, worship leader, people come up to you, well, you know, you know, pastor, there's a whole lot of hurting people in here, man. And, you know, so, 
it's okay, so what do you want me to like put on a sad face so I can relate to them? So then I'm going to get down there in the hole, and we all going to be down there. Huh? <laughs> oh, I know you know. <laughs> now, there's a place to weep with those weeping. You do that in the personal. But, but there's also something about, about expressing and walking in joy so you can pull up other people around you that maybe need to just look up and say, hey, I think I'm going to go there too. That probably will work better than the other thing. <laughs> now, Tony Campolo tells this story about when his son was small. They, they went to Disneyland. And that's when it was only probably $50. They gotta have they gotta have uh, loans that you could take out to go there now. They went to the, anyway. Tony Campolo, um, uh, sociologist, Christian speaker, noted Christian thinker. He, uh, he took his son to Disneyland, and at the end of the day, they were they're leaving Disneyland, right? And so his son says, "We're, we're uh, he says I, I want one more ride on Space Mountain." And so Tony says, "We're out of time, and I'm out of money." Because, you know, you got to eat in there, too, right? And his son says, Jesus wants me to go. So Tony says, how do you read that? He says, his son replied, Sunday in church, when you were preaching, you told the people that whenever we cry, Jesus cries. What we feel, he feels. He feels it at this very moment. We are feeling it. If that's true, Dad, if he feels everything we feel right at the moment we're feeling it, then when, then when we're laughing and having a great time, he's laughing and having a great time. So I think he would enjoy it if I had just one more ride on Space Mountain. <laughs> uh, Tony was impressed. This is from his book, uh, The Kingdom of God is a, cel- is a Party. Tony was impressed with his son's ability as a theologian. And so he says, we have a God who cannot be happy. You need to know this about God. And this sounds sick, maybe, if 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 you're a traditionalist, if you're stuck in in rigid lines of thinking. But there's a sense in which we we have a God who cannot be happy unless we, his people, are happy. Because that's why God sent his son Jesus into the world. God sent Jesus into the world in order that he might dispel the sadness, the gloom, and bring us joy. Because when our sins have been forgiven and we've come into a right relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, man, we've, we, what, that's, that's why we're, what do you else you think we're jumping around up in here today for? What do you think these folks are singing their hearts out over here for? Because it's Sunday and we do this, it's either this or brunch? Because something has happened in my life and something has changed and a burden has been lifted off my shoulder and so the joy of the Lord has become my strength. And so God cares about your joy. God wants you to, to, to be filled with joy. And that's why he calls us to celebration. And so this reminds us that in this social setting, God is concerned about joy. Joy. Say joy. joy. Okay, I got one more, okay? And then we, and then we, can, then we can have freshmen's. In verse 5. Verse 5 literally says this. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So, you know, somebody could say to me as a Protestant, you know, you, 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 you know, you, I got a bone to pick with you because I'm Roman Catholic and you don't venerate Mary. No, I do venerate Mary. I, I, I use Mary. I, I'm right in line with me. That's what Mary said. She said, do what he tells you. She said that. Mm-hmm. So in that case, I'm, I'm, I'm with... I'm with Mother Mary. But here's the deal. Listen to this. The key to unlocking the power of God, to unlocking miracles in your life that will glorify God, 
and bring his provision, it comes from Jesus' mom. She doesn't say a lot in scripture, but this is big. And she says it in a context. But it might make a great life verse for somebody. Verse 5b, as we would say, that last half of the verse. You could take it out of context and still never go wrong because it's, you know, it's one of those things that no matter where you say it, 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 it it's right. It's theolo theologically sound. Do whatever he tells you. When we obey Jesus, amazing things will happen in us and all around us. When we obey Jesus, we release the blessings of God in our lives and in the lives of other people. When we obey Jesus, we unleash his power in our situation, in our home, in our finances, in our relationships. When we obey Jesus, we silence the mouth of the enemy and dispel the powers of darkness. When we obey Jesus, we position ourselves to experience his abundance in our lives. And so I tell you this morning, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he's called you to do. Heed his word. Live your life based upon the truth as expressed in the word of God in the scriptures. Do whatever he tells you to do. And when you're running on empty, when you're just about out of strength, I know that doesn't apply to anybody here today, but there might be somebody you meet down the road that fits that description. Hello. But when you're running on empty and when you're just about out of strength, I'm going to tell you, no matter what, you do what the master says and he will provide for you. When you're at the end of your rope, listen for his voice, heed his instructions and get ready for him to meet you in the midst of your situation. Do whatever he tells you. He's telling you to, if he's telling you to tighten up your commitment, do it. If he's telling you to, to, to get back in church, do it. If he's telling you to, to, to give your heart fully to him, do it. If he's telling you to, to walk away from that situation and walk into this situation, do it. If he's telling you to get out of that and get into this, if he's telling you to give this up, do it. And I guarantee you, you will be blessed. And then finally, I'm about to close. Verse 11, stated result. It has a certain limitation to it because in this setting it says the disciples believed. They saw his glory. Probably referring only to the 12 and it's early in the journey, right? And they're seeing this and this is the, the warm-up date. The first miracle. And they were able to believe in him as a result. I want to ask you this as we prepare to close this morning. Are you ready to put your faith and trust in him? Have you seen enough to know that he really is the son of God? Have you heard enough to know that he really loves you and he cares about every detail, every nuance of your life? Yes. Maybe heaven and earth in some part of your life have met in some situation, in some place where God has spared you from, from death or kept you out of trouble or, or, give, or given, given you one more chance intervened in your situation, maybe in a seemingly trivial matter. Maybe you prayed for a parking space and he gave it to you at the mall. Are you willing to trust him? Are you willing to believe in him? Will you give your life, the entirety of your being to him? His desire is that you would, as the disciples, give him glory, that you would recognize who he is and that you place your total faith and trust in him. But remember this as we close. He cares about your honor. He cares about every detail of your life. He'll give you his best. He wants you to have his joy. 
and we're called to do whatever it is he's saying to us. Amen. Let's stand.